Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. Welcome to the Love Fest. That is Tell Me Everything coming at you. Live and interactive, bringing good trouble to the right-wing bubble. I hope you had a good day. I hope you're having a good week. If it started rough, I hope it's getting better. I mean, look, you're probably having a better day than Elon Musk or Ron DeSantis. So keep that in mind. For the next three hours, we're going to be talking to people smarter and funnier and more attractive and more moral than me. And that includes all y'all. We have a lot to catch up on. It was a pretty crazy day. Chris Hauselt is our executive producer. He's not here tonight. He's going having some kind of procedure done. He doesn't want us to say what it is. I... It involves extensive plastic surgery. That's all. I, I've already said too much. Uh, Matt is filling in tonight. So everyone, give a warm welcome to Matt, who's uh, keeping this thing on the tracks. Uh, the great Thea Harper is still producing from Brooklyn. She will be with us all night long. And of course, 866-997-4748 is the number to have y'all join the conversation. And we'd love to hear from you. A lot of good guests tonight. Dr. Jason Nichols will be joining us from the University of Maryland to talk about, well, Everything from guns to those racist Oklahoma sheriffs who <laughs> said stuff on tape you shouldn't say anytime. The Dominion Settlement and Robert Kennedy doing his best to destroy his own brand. Um, also, Professor Corey Brettschneider joins us with Dr. Julie Suk, who was on our show a couple years ago for a great book that she wrote about the ERA. She has a dynamite new read called After Misogyny. How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About It. And it will change the way you view that M-word of misogyny. It's not as simple as just hating women. It's institutionalized. And in a time when we're finally learning to start talking about institutionalized racism, it is only morally right that we also learn how to talk about institutionalized systemic sexism. Because, hey, that's popular all over the world. And, of course, tomorrow night we will be here doing a live show. You can also watch me on Dan Abrams' show on News Nation. And you can also watch me on Stephanie Rule on MSNBC. Yes, tomorrow night I will be appearing on two different cable news shows while I'm here with you. So please watch me and listen to me. Turn down the sound on the TV and listen to this. I'm sure it'll be just as coherent as whatever I'm saying on the TV. Uh, they've been trying to get Daddy to go back to TV for a while. I have not. I haven't done a cable news show in a studio since before the pandemic. So I'm finally, I'm finally starting to do it again. They 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 yelled at me enough times, and uh, I'm finally coming out of my cave. So please tune in tomorrow. In the meantime, there's a lot to talk about. The house has approved the trans athlete ban for girls and women's teams. Uh, Dick Durbin has uh, politely invited Chief Justice John Roberts to testify about a Supreme Court ethics rules before a Senate committee. That's going to happen. 
Um, the Republican Party is trying to paint Joe Biden's labor nominee as a radical. Good luck. Biden is going to officially announce he's running for re-election next week. At least three people have been killed as these tornadoes strike Oklahoma. And then, well, SpaceX, their next generation Starship, exploded this morning like the band Starship and fell to the ground in hundreds of shards above East Texas. A major test of its most powerful rocket. So heavy, they called it super heavy. And it didn't fly. Um, And that wasn't even the worst part of Elon Musk's day. Because later in the day, of course, the blue checkmark purge began on Twitter. I went to pick up my kid at school. (laughs) When I left, I had a blue checkmark. Mark Hamill, Jerry Ryan. When I got back, Mark, Jerry, and I, we'd lost them all. The blue checkmark went from saying this person really is who they say they are to being this person could be any person. They just paid a billionaire $8. So sorry, you won't be seeing me pop up in your verified feeds anymore, kids. But uh, I don't plan on giving $8 a month <laughs> to Elon Musk. I've, you know, I'd rather hit rock bottom through, you know, you know, the drug addiction. I, I mean, you know, gambling away my child's future, the, the, the conventional ways of hitting rock bottom, not satisfying the ego that wrecked Tesla. All right. So we got a lot going on. You guys are part of it. Let's do a show. And let me say, happy 420 to you and yours. Also, let me say happy 420 to you and yours. I forgot I said that already. See, we live in a society where the Colorado mass shooter could easily buy 6,000 rounds of ammo on the internet, but our friend Tommy Chong went to jail for selling bongs. And it's a very important day in America, 420, because it's really, as unofficial holidays go, it's a great marker for where we're going, where we are, and where we've been. And we've come quite a long way. At this point, the only safe industries left for growth in America are uh, medical cannabis, tattoo removal, and Donald Trump defense attorneys. If you have a kid going to college and your kid wants to find a way to get employed in this country, medical cannabis, tattoo removal, or Trump lawyers. Let's talk about cannabis and how we got here. And I'd love to hear from you, know your thoughts on it. How do you feel about medical cannabis? How do you feel about recreational cannabis? Do you feel it should be forcibly administered to Congress by the state? Um, We're at 866. You know the number. See, I I was watching Fox News a couple years back, and I came across this old commercial they used to show all the time for the drug war. Maybe you remember it. It's the one that said, if you buy drugs, even pot, your money may go to fund terrorists. Now, brothers and sisters, this was an eye-opener for me. I mean, I grew up in America's public schools, and we had all the traditional propaganda about cannabis. You know what I'm talking about. All those horror stories about all the evil things weed will do to your brain. I I, I, I can't recall any of it right now. But, but you get the idea. Um, they, always, they always told us this growing up. Did you get this? Uh, weed makes you violent and lazy which never scared any kids I knew. Violent people being lazy is actually the only anti-crime strategy that works. Think about it, people. Work with me. Just imagine. I'm going to kill you, man, uh, right after this burrito. This is why so many kids in my generation grew up having a really hard time taking the drug war seriously. We're always changing the reasons why we needed to have the drug war, but the message was always the same. They, they kept telling him, kids, drugs are bad, drugs are bad, drugs are bad. And that, my friends, is not the problem. The problem is not that drugs are bad. The problem is drugs are great. That's the problem. Addiction is bad. Overdosing, that's bad. 
Making stupid choices when you're high is bad. And all you potheads who accidentally paid to see Avatar in 2D know what I'm talking about. You know, I, I thought it was hilarious that our government at one point was trying to link the war on drugs to their war on terror. You see, the drug war, as we know it, first began, did you know this, back in that bastion of morality? Uh, San Francisco, back in 1873. See, you'd be surprised how our drug war began. Spoiler alert, it's all about racism. Because back in 1873, Chicago, Chinese immigrants, they were the group everyone was allowed to hate. Oh yeah, before gay people before uh, women who want abortions, before undocumented immigrants, before transgender children, before Muslims, Chinese people were who everyone was encouraged to hate in America. And Caucasian people of the 1870s in the Pacific Northwest didn't really cotton to the thought of good Christian folks going to smoke in the opium dens of the heathen Chinese. You see, back then, um, they had uh, the same kind of opium problems we have now. But white people took opium as well. They usually just ate it, drank it, like laudanum, or shot it up. You know, the wholesome ways. So then they passed a law taxing imported smokable opium in 1873. That's noteworthy. Since besides the obvious racism, it was the first time the government used taxes not to raise money as the founders intended, but to punish and control private behavior. They didn't tax the kind of opium you drank or shot up with or ate. They taxed the kinds you smoked because that's how the Chinese immigrants consumed it. So guess what happened? Uh, after this law was passed, the well-regulated law-abiding opium houses shut down the Chinese-American underworld grew stronger, violence erupted, lives disrupted, cops and politicians corrupted, America interrupted. The drug war began because of anti-Chinese racism. A hundred years before Nixon reinvigorated the drug war with anti-black racism. So I think it's kind of ironic that, you know, at one point they linked the drug war to the terror war. Because once the Taliban was out of power, people could finally get decent opium again. Now, the drug war has been around so long, it feels like it's part of our heritage. But cannabis hemp was a major American crop from the earliest colonial days. The U.S. Census of 1850 counted 8,000 hemp plantations in the country. I'm going to quote that again because I think it's relevant. 1850 census counted 8,000 hemp plantations. Growing cannabis was as American as apple pie. And everybody knew. If you smoked the flowery top part of the cannabis plant, you, brother, would want to eat a lot of apple pies. They knew how to get high off it. It was never a concern. Back then, as now, the biggest drug problem in the United States was our old buddy alcohol. Now, when the government finally made cannabis illegal in 1937, the American Medical Association officially protested because for hundreds of years, it's medicinal and its industrial uses were very well documented. I mean, Washington grew hemp at Mount Vernon. Thomas Jefferson grew hemp at Monticello. Thomas Jefferson actually helped smuggle rare hemp seeds out of China. Nowadays, they would go to jail for this. If we ever, you know, locked up rich white guys, maybe they could start a dispensary in San Francisco. Uh, Benjamin Franklin started a colonial paper mill that made paper from hemp fiber. I'm not saying Ben never smoked any. I'm sure lots of perfectly sober guys fly kites during thunderstorms <laughs> can you imagine can you imagine ben franklin 
flying a kite with a metal key on it during a thunderstorm. And then, you know, coming into the back room where the founders were all sitting there with their snuff boxes and he's soaking wet and goes, guys, guys, you won't believe it. I've just harnessed electricity. We're going to give it to all the colonists for free. And in the back, you got John Adams and Alexander Hamilton going, no, nah, we'll make them pay for it. Yeah. Yeah, but it's worth, also worth mentioning from the 1600s through the 1800s, cannabis hemp in this country we are living in was used as a currency. It was legal tender. In fact, for over 200 years, you could pay your taxes in cannabis hemp. Yeah, you could pay your taxes in cannabis hemp for over 200 years. That's how we get the expression joint return. I made that up. And today, cannabis fans in 20 plus states and the District of Columbia are able to buy marijuana, Mary Jane, weed, reefer, pot. Does anyone say pot anymore? I haven't heard anyone say pot since they were still saying reefer. But you're able to buy cannabis legally in 20 plus states plus D.C. Medicinal use is legal in 38 states. Like marriage equality, like women getting the vote, like ending apartheid in this country, it didn't happen overnight. It took a long time. It took lots of activists. It took lots of people fighting. And eventually, the leaders very gradually caught up. Cannabis, however, is a big capitalism. It's the, the, the legalized marijuana market in America is worth roughly $64 billion. It's almost tripled in the last three years as the decriminalization efforts have gone into play all across the nation. Maryland and Missouri were the most recent states to approve decriminalizing recreational cannabis last November. So my point is, cannabis has been in America for thousands of years, even longer than white people. And it was only made illegal in the 1930s. When they made it illegal, the American Medical Association testified against it on the record in the 1930s, testified before Congress to the health benefits of cannabis. It's only been illegal for like the last 70 or 80 years. So technically, my friends, legal weed is the conservative point of view. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hey, everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, 
and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on. Because you know I love it when you do. We want to know what you guys think. Let's go to the phones. Uh, Norm is calling from Tampa. Hi, Norm. Welcome. Uh Uh-oh, you hit my subject matter here. Okay. We talk about it. Go within the norm. Okay. Okay. I just sent Hit you me. a very controversial article. Actually, it was written by a member of the Cato Institute. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Cato Institute. And uh, I want you to take a look at it. Okay. So, and it's written, and Jeff uh, Singer is a senior fellow over there. He's okay. written several articles on this subject matter. And you ready for this, this there? Oh, I'm, I'm seeing it right now. You tweeted this to me, Norm. It's called. Uh, it's past time for Congress to re-legalize heroin. Go ahead. Exactly. Diamorphine. In fact, mm-hmm. we're one of the few countries where heroin, as a medical use, is is banned. One of the few. Use it in Canada. And it's primarily used yeah. for harm reduction. That's one thing. And it also is used medically in Europe. And, so it, and actually, we had no... The back, if you go back when this thing starts, okay, mm-hmm. it, and the understanding of the uh, addiction or what we call the mesial limbic system and how people become dependent on certain products. Of course, that same system is the same system that folks are, uh, th- that addiction is the same thing that, that occurs when someone loves chocolate cake or they love their text. That's right. Texting That's right. And the whole thing with these endorphins and That's right. BTs same part of the brain. That's all part of the brain. So let me ask you a question, Norm. You're, as a, as a as someone in the pharmaceutical industry, let me ask you: Do you think, in a different world, do you think that morphine could ever be approved if it was up to this current Congress? No. In fact, I don't think this Congress is. The fact is that we lack. We we have dumbed down our science. You know, morphine is one of the most important medications that has ever been produced. Now, let, let, me, let me get back into to, to one thing to say about heroin. A lot of people don't know what heroin is. Actually, heroin is morphine. I mean, it's called yeah. diamorphine. At the vehicle yeah. that it's acetylating and takes it across the blood-brain barrier, and when it breaks down, it comes back into, into, into morphine. Yes. So, and there's a, a lack of understanding how these things work. Why was, you know why, the primarily reason why it was made illegal there were two reasons why. Well, one primarily was is that the Harrison Act was there was a lot of racism developed in the Harrison Act, and these people were the people were using the uh, what we call diamorphine or heroin. That's right. To uh, treat their pain from sickle cell disorder. That's right. I mean, so they figured they could wipe out black folk and they could by denying them access to this mm-hmm. product, but also mm-hmm. was using. At menstrual cramps, but at that time we didn't have like NASIDs and other medications available, and people uh, used. Of course, they became dependent upon it, and 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 uh, not dependent, but addicted to it. And right. uh, some but something else, but but, so- but if regulated, if regulated, right. and in terms of 
harm reduction. Uh, this uh, we could we could eliminate the uh, reduce this so-called war on drugs. And in fact, one of the things that this president needs to do, and I'm kind of all over the place here, is we need to first come up and end this war on drugs because the war on drugs is designed for one thing. It was a war on black folk to stop the civil rights. Oh, yeah. I have met so many exonerees. I bet I've met so many men in the course of making some films who were caught in the 70s with a tiny amount of heroin and spent decades in jail. And of course, they were black and uh, white people Mm -hmm. consumed a lot more opioids. Black people went to jail for it a lot more. Now, the modern opioid crisis, we can talk all day about big pharma pushing these things and pushing these things. But as you know, as well as me, a lot of folks got hooked on them because they were prescribed. And then when they couldn't get them anymore, they realized, hey, there's something cheaper and more powerful. And that kid down the block can help me get it. And it's called heroin. So heroin heroin is actually in. Go ahead. Let me talk about, and people talk about fentanyl. Well, there's two different, there's two different things that are happening here too. Fentanyl that we use in the medical fentanyl has is what we call the fentanyl citrate, mm-hmm. and that fentanyl citrate uh, is is totally different from is is the what we call the medical product and the street product that the cartels produce is known as the fentanyl acetate. Okay. Okay. It's a, okay. it's a big difference, and people are over. <laughs> and I hate all of it. This whole episode about overdosing, okay, that's a misconception. How do you overdose on uh, fentanyl acetate or even heroin? Because you ask yourself, hear me now. Mm, well, plenty do, plenty do, Norm. It is you're taking it beyond its therapeutic dose. So what's the therapeutic dose of heroin? Heroin is produced now as a poison. It's not right because real. it's not regulated. As this is the it's this is right. the it's number one reason why it should be decriminalized and regulated. It's because fentanyl killed Prince. Fentanyl killed Tom exactly. Petty. Yeah, exactly. And so we exactly. have, we're a long ways from that. Read blog. And there's a very interesting article written by some guys, uh, Ronald Capolotto and Jacob uh, Rich, out of the Yale uh, Law School Review. In fact, okay. it's called the misconception. Uh, in fact, it's called misinformation. Uh, miss something, but it's here in in, in our, our article here. It's called uh, about uh, a, a woman at law, at law school, at Loyola Law School, named Rebecca Delfino, who okay. comes up with this really flawed policies. And these guys from Yale uh, uh, shoot it down. They had worked for the uh, Norm- the. Uh, I, I, Norm, I got I got to run and take some other I got to run and take some other calls, but I have one last question okay. for you, Norm. That is that is, do you think Ron DeSantis would ever sign a law decriminalizing cannabis in the state of Florida if it meant a large financial windfall? You're talking about DeSantis down here in DeSantisburg. Yeah, I'm talking about the guy you got now. Guy, he would never do it. Would he? No. The problem with Ron DeSantis is 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 he's not woke. He's, he's ignorant. And you, he's, he's almost childish in his behavior. I, I don't know. That's why it's going to be really fun watching him and Trump tear each other to right. ribbons. I got to run, Norm. Yeah. You're a gentleman. You All are right. within the norms. Have a great weekend. But I got to get to some other callers while we have the time. Uh, let me say hello to Stephen in Kentucky. How are you, Stephen? Hello. How are you this evening? Better now that you're here. Well, that's good to hear. Um, I'm calling about this bill that was passed earlier today, this transgendered a youth bill that they Mm -hmm. were passing, and I called my congressman this afternoon about this. Um, 
You know, as someone who happens to be a member of the LGBTQ community myself, I'd like to say on behalf of our group, I think these people need to go to a therapist and deal with their own damn problems, their own repressed possible um, homosexuality themselves. Who the hell are they to tell us? I don't flaunt my personal life in public. I have... I I have discretion. Maybe some people like to play reality TV today. I don't. If I wanted that, I would put that on my Christmas cards every year. <laughs> the fact is, the fact is, we have some people out here. Judge Thomas comes to mind. Maybe we need to start exposing their personal lives or lack of personal lives. Because I tell you what, if they want to play dirty, let's play dirty. Because I don't mind talking about maybe their sexual dysfunction, because clearly something is going on that they are so neurotically obsessed when you have... And I want to be clear about something. One of your other callers last week, he was a truck driver. I believe it was Kendall, I believe. Oh, everyone loves Kendall. Yeah, everyone loves Kendall. Well, I have something to say to Kendall. Let me tell you something, dear. The fact is, when it comes to transgender children, if a person, in this case a young man, decides to undergo the operation and becomes a woman, how the hell can you sit there and deny them the right to participate in sports, to participate in life? They have the right to do that. I'm All this crap about talking about, what was it, uh, oh, this is disenfranchising young women. Oh, really? You all care so much about young women now. You're trying mm. to uh, rob them of their rights when it comes to abortion. But l- let me ask you, let me, let me ask you though, what's the solution? I mean, is the solution having a, a, a third division for, for intersex play? Uh, you know, is the, do you, do you let trans girls compete with cisgender girls, even if they are biologically bigger and stronger, despite the fact that they take medication to be weaker? Um, what is the fair resolution to this? Because I don't well, pretend to you know. let them compete. Of course you let them compete. The fact is, well, why are you involved in sports to begin with? I mean, uh, the fact is, of course they should be. Uh, if, to not let them do this, to me, is almost anti-American. It goes against freedom. I mean, mm. the fact is, so what they decide. I think this is not about, though, that. I think this is about the idea in general of control. This is right. about trying to convince people uh, in their sick and twisted minds uh, I'm talking about the religious right in this case, that somehow or another, simply because people are different, that they don't deserve rights. Well, I've got news for you. Our country was founded on difference. We haven't mm-hmm. obviously always obviously subscribed to that, but that's the ideal. And I tell nope. you, people need to get it right. They need to either say to themselves, do we want freedom or do we want authoritarianism? Because th- we cannot go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. This has been going on too long, and this is just representing of this, and also, by the way, this thing about parental rights. Mm-hmm. Well, let me tell you something. I took child development when I was in college, and mm-hmm. I remember. Tell me really quick, because we got to hit a break. Marion Wright Edelman talking about children's rights, and the fact is, if they're so concerned about pro-life, why do they not change the term minor? when referring to children under the law. Minor is insignificant and unserious. So you tell me how much you value children then, if you're not going to allow them to... 
to maintain equality with adults and children. And ours, we all have to learn from one another. Adults learn from children. Children learn from adults. Sure. It, it's it's a process. It is, and I can't believe these idiots. They seem to they say that the next generation is better than the previous one. Well, if that's the case, how can you sit there and demean children by not giving them their equal rights under the Stephen, law? Stephen, I'm going to have to let it end it on that note. But I promise you, I will now henceforth call my minor a major. And I thank you so much for calling in. But we have to hit a quick break. When we return, Professor Corey Brettschneider will be with us, along with Dr. Julie Souk, to talk about, well, one of our favorite subjects in politics these days, misogyny. Don't go anywhere. We'll be taking your calls for the next three hours at 866-997-GRIT. And I'll be thanking you for your patience on hold. We'll be right back on Progress. Just as racism is embedded in the legal system, so is misogyny. Even after the law proclaims gender equality and criminally punishes violence against women. We're going to talk a bit about misogyny on the show this evening. Corey Brettschneider, of course, joins us every Thursday. He is the brilliant professor with a PhD in politics from Princeton, the law degree from Stanford, and he uses them all to enrich the lives of students in the poli-sci department at Brown. Corey is the author of the essential book, The Oath in the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents, which should be a civics guide for every American, starting with Congress. He's also the author of the Penguin Liberty series books on free speech, impeachment, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg's notable cases. Every now and then, Corey decides to class up our show by bringing one of his colleagues along, and tonight it's someone we've been privileged to have on our show before. Dr. Julie Souk is an interdisciplinary and comparative legal scholar researching equality at the intersection of law, history, sociology, and politics in the U.S. and globally. Uh, She's written many books. She was on our show a couple years back for her book, We the Women, The Unstoppable Mothers of the Equal Rights Amendment, which is an astounding book, the first to chronicle and assess the 21st century revival of the ERA. Her new book, however, After Misogyny, How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About It, One Woman's Struggle Towards Inclusive Constitutional Democracy Around the World is out now. It is a great pleasure to welcome Professor Brett Schneider and Dr. Julie Souk to SiriusXM. Hello. Hi. Thanks, John. Great intro as always. Well, and that's <laughs> right. I, I, the pleasure to class up the joint by inviting Julie to join us and to talk about her really amazing book, uh, insightful and extremely relevant given the the topics of the moment. Thanks so much for having me on the show again. I'm really excited to talk to you both. Thank you, doctor. And since Corey and I outnumber you, the patriarchy will be, will be safe. So let's, let's <laughs> okay, yeah, great. Yeah, patriarchy is solid here. Um, we'll we'll explain uh, a mansplaining to you as well. So I, I have so many questions, doctor. This book is is uh, just out, and it's so fascinating because honestly, I, you know, as you point out, misogyny is much larger than just hatred of women. <laughs> I'm I'm curious how you define that term, and if your research on this book has changed the way you view this term. Absolutely. So I think we tend to think misogyny is hatred against women. uh, And the hatred takes many forms, including violence and what we might call animus in the law or discrimination, discrimination against women. And I think that it's actually much larger than that, because if it was only those things, Uh, then uh, there would just be a few people who are really hateful and violent, which wouldn't describe everyone. Exactly. Uh, And and so then we could just say we're in a post-misogynist society. 
but the real problem with misogyny is that there's actually a, a larger structure of patriarchy that took many millennia to build, actually, uh, and was officially protected by an entire legal system. And it's only quite recently, if you just think about the arc of human history, uh, really uh, with the first wave women's movement in the 19th century, culminating in women being able to vote by the early 20th century, and um, many efforts throughout the 20th century to include women in equal protection of the rights, uh, sorry, equal rights for women under the law, equal protection under the law. Uh, those are things that I think we often think of as dismantling the patriarchy, uh, but they actually don't. Uh, so the patriarchy sort of continues to survive in other things that the law is doing. And so misogyny, it turns out, is not just the hatred of women, but a whole set of assumptions uh, that feed the violence. And those assumptions are about uh, the entitlement of society to women's sacrifices. And mm. the place where we see that the most, and I think it's playing out very strongly today, is the attitude of society and a legal system, often a legal system controlled largely by men, although not entirely, uh, the attitude that the uh, culture and legal system have towards reproduction, uh, the That's idea right. that women are expected uh, to undergo a lot of pain and sacrifice, literal pain and sacrifice in childbearing and child rearing, which is to everybody's benefit. Uh, but uh, all of those benefits to society in terms of the preservation of life uh, and the survival of the polity, uh, they come uh, without adequate recognition of the yes. uh, contributions that women make. One of the things, Julie, that I loved about the book is that it, it, you know, it deals very much with the moment that we're in. The Supreme Court, of course, has reversed Roe versus Wade, and the Dobbs opinion doesn't look great, doesn't look good at all for the future of women's rights in regard to abortion. But one of the things I love about the book is, although, of course, you mentioned that early on, discuss it, you take us outside the United States to start to think about how to reflect on the role that misogyny has in the law, but also how it can be combated and thought about and theorized and 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 and. Uh, we can respond to it by looking at how other countries have dealt with um, uh, this issue uh, in ways that looked dire at one point and, and then in some ways that we recovered. So I wanted to ask you in particular, I thought the Germany case was fascinating. And, and what can we, by looking at Germany, what can we learn for ourselves about the question of uh, misogyny and uh, the idea of entitlement and expectation of women's over-sacrifice uh, in this area of abortion. And and if you see some hope in that German story, too, I guess I think listeners, you know, we're talking a lot about how dire things are at, at the Supreme Court, but I think listeners might appreciate some, some of the hope, too, that you, you might see in that German story. Well, first and foremost, Germany is one of the many countries around the world that explicitly committed to equal rights between women and men after World War One and after World War II. After World War II, it becomes pretty normal to include equal rights for women and men. But I think there's a widespread understanding around the world, although some countries come to it sooner than others, that hmm. uh, committing to equality, non-discrimination is really, it's necessary, but by no means sufficient to dismantle patriarchy. I think one of the mistakes we've made in the United States is that we think that if we just stop discriminating, 
against women. And we do this in the race context as well. We think if we yes. stop discriminating on the basis of race, uh, then uh, we're we can just have a reset button uh, and we'll have equality. Uh, and of course, it doesn't work that way uh, because uh, there are uh, patriarchal gender relations that persist. Uh, so in Germany, uh, the thing that's really interesting is that when constitutionally Germany commits to equal rights between women and men, they also add a clause to the constitution that say, says mothers deserve the special care and protection of the community. Uh, uh, and this is and this is also very common. I wouldn't say universal, but it's very common in many European constitutions to have a commitment to mothers in the constitution. Uh, and on the one hand, it seems like a stereotype of patriarchy. Uh, we're just saying mothers give something to the community. But what's really kind of progressive about it is that it recognizes that uh, the work that people do to bear children and raise children is not actually private. Roe versus exactly. Wade has you believing that it's just like this totally private act of vanity that you have a child and raise it in your image or something. Uh, but actually childbearing and child rearing have tremendous public value. Uh, mm -hmm. We create the next generation of citizens and workers and um, and the nation. Uh, so uh, once you rec start to recognize that, uh, of course, on the one hand, uh, the interesting thing about what Germany does with abortion around the same time that we get Roe versus Wade in West Germany, uh, the constitutional court actually strikes down an effort by the legislature to create more abortion access. Uh, so it's almost like the opposite, uh, where the legislatures are getting ahead and saying, we're going to liberalize abortion, and the court stops them at the time uh, and stops them saying, well, unborn life has value, you know. And of course, in a constitutional tradition that grew out of or as a reaction against Nazi Germany, they say That's human right. dignity is important, so we're going to have to protect unborn life. But at the same time, they write this opinion saying, uh, but of course, hu because human dignity is important, there's so much you can ask living persons to mm -hmm. do to ensure that unborn life survives. Uh, and so they recognize the fact that uh, the unborn life just doesn't just on its own turn itself into a born life. Uh, the uh, pregnant person uh, takes disproportionate uh, costs and sacrifices often to their own career and to control yes. of their own destiny in order for that unborn life to become a child. Uh, and so in recognition of that, uh, that in a, an opinion that's really like, I'll just say it, it's an anti-abortion opinion, but it plants all these seeds uh, that say, well, uh, of course, abortion would be justified if the mother's life was threatened. Uh, of course, abortion would be justified if the mother's uh, social and economic circumstances would make it so that having and raising the child would significantly uh, alter her destiny. Uh, or um, And so these are the kinds of things once planted, the legislature picks up on when they rewrite that law. Uh, they don't uh, totally liberalize abortion. Uh, but they create these exceptions and those exceptions over time grow and grow uh, where so today now in Germany and in many European countries, there's access to abortion in the first trimester, essentially on demand. Uh, but yeah. it's much more limited in the second and third trimester where it's exceptions for not just threats to life, uh, but also threats to physical and mental health of the pregnant person. And but, but that really creates a situation where there's access to abortion, particularly if you also live in a society 
with uh, publicly funded healthcare. Well, now you got uh, to my next question. Yeah, because inherently, <laughs> like Germany, like most of our capitalist allies, uh, will not kick the unborn to the curb once they become the born. In terms of access to healthcare, no one in these other capitalist first world countries are not having children because they can't afford it. America is a place that inherently forces women to have these children and then makes it extremely expensive to be pregnant and to be a new mother. They're, they're, and it's fitting we're having this conversation. Absolutely. And, 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 and bro this live broadcast and taping this conversation um, on an evening when we're, we're waiting for the Supreme Court and the men on the court to let us know what they've decided for women about Mifepristone. But um, I, I want to bring it back to the, the racism uh, uh, paradigm for a moment because I, I really think you nailed it. Just as we have to separate garden variety bigotry and race hatred, from institutionalized racism, we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time mentally and separate garden variety sexism from institutionalized misogyny. And, and Dr. Suk, you've said misogyny is the unjust enrichment of society at women's expense. And you said on a tweet, for example, some states benefit from a culture of life by forcing women to stay pregnant without reducing maternal mortality or providing paid maternity leave. And it's all there in our face. But so many of us don't notice it because we've been raised in this system. Right. So what's actually so troubling about so many of the states which uh, that passed really draconian abortion bans after Dobbs, or actually they passed them before Dobbs, they just didn't come into effect until after mm -hmm. Dobbs. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's like, you know, they they basically ban almost all abortions, whether at six weeks or even from the moment of conception. Uh, and a lot of these bans are being passed in states that have the highest rates of maternal mortality. And very few states right now actually guarantee a paid maternity leave. That's right. And up until December 2022, uh, we did not have federal law protecting pregnant worker fairness. And that's to say uh, in many states, it's and a, a lot of so we were dependent on state law at the time, you know, as of this year, we're going to have federal pregnant, pregnant worker fairness because it was finally passed uh, in December. But I bring that up because it means you could live in a state where abortion is banned. Uh, so you have to stay pregnant, uh, but there's no law that requires your employer to um, enable you to have a healthy pregnancy if you keep your job, meaning That's like right. there was no law that would require the uh, employer to let you carry a water bottle. Uh, or avoid lifting 80 pounds if that was part of your job. Uh, so there are all these things that are clearly bad, not only for the pregnant woman, but also for the growing fetus. That uh, And the, uh, so many of the states that force pregnancy by banning abortion do absolutely nothing uh, to support no. uh, the bringing into the world of a healthy child. And then the raising of that healthy child, like public childcare. Idaho has one of the most draconian abortion bans now. Um, this is a state that last year, there was federal money for childcare, which they respected. And I'm uh, sorry, they they not respected. They they rejected the federal money for childcare. And That's they right. said, well, we, we want the women to stay home with the kids. So we don't want public yeah. childcare uh, funds. Uh, and, uh, and so this, I think these dynamics really show uh, that the problem, which if you look at an abortion ban, it makes sense to call it misogynist, not because it means there's actual hatred against women, uh, but just this unreasonable expectation uh, that life is going to be brought into this world and nurtured. Yes. 
at someone's expense. Uh, and it suggests uh, uh, unequal respect for that person. I wanted to ask, ahead, I mean, Corey. you know, we, we've been delving deep into the present and into the uh, case of Germany and the book, you know, nicely takes us out of our start, certainly in our current moment, brings us around the world to places like Germany and Ireland, I'll mention too. But the other thing I, I thought was fascinating about the book that I wanted to ask you about is its use of history too, to to have a similar effect, including yes. the history of the United States. And I had a, um, we had a close relative, my wife's grandmother who lived uh, well into her hundreds and she was involved in temperance and was a, a <laughs> teetotaler, but also definitely a feminist, very early yeah. serious feminist. And one of the things I loved about the book was how you bring us into that moment. And, you know, there's a sense, I think, for a lot of Americans, when we think about prohibition, for instance, that we think, OK, that was a sort of crazy limit on our liberty. And you do so much more with that. So I just wanted to invite you to, to tell us, you know, what can we learn from? It's not that you wholeheartedly are, you know, defending bans on, on liquor. Thing Absolutely like that. not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, but you are. Definitely teaching us something by a, a deep dive inquiry into the temperance movement, into questions of um, women and, and issues of prohibition. So what can we learn from that period? Yeah, so I'm so glad you asked that, Corey, because I think there are maybe like three things that most people know about prohibition. Uh, one is it banned alcohol that like people hate it already uh, with, <laughs> for, for that reason alone. Uh, but two, uh, it did give rise to uh, the growth of uh, the carceral state or criminal law, federal criminal law enforcement and policing, which I think people find uh, difficult uh, and problematic. Uh, and third, it failed because it was the only constitutional amendment that we actually uh, repealed, uh, hmm. re acknowledging that it was a mistake. Uh, and I think those because of those three things, uh, there, there are three huge stains uh, that make it, I think, difficult for people to learn anything else about prohibition. And so I started researching prohibition just because of its temporal proximity to the women's suffrage amendment which succeeded mm -hmm. the year after, that's 1920, prohibition. Uh, the prohibition amendment was passed in 1919. Uh, but uh, what I learned, of course, is that almost all the famous suffragists, like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, that they're also temperance people in the 19th century. Uh, and a lot, and like temperance, women's, the Women's Christian Temperance Union was the largest women's political organization in the United States at the end of the uh, 19th century, uh, much larger than suffrage organizations. And they took a social problem like domestic violence. It turns out that if um, if uh, your husband is frequently intoxicated, uh, rates of domestic violence uh, are worse. <laughs> Uh, and for a lot of the women living in the Midwest and South who may not necessarily have identified as feminist, uh, if that concept was, you know, it's not fully fleshed out then, uh, but they see a lot of social problems having to do with male drunkenness. Now, right. Domestic violence is an obvious one, but it's also like if the man is spending all the money at the saloon, there's nothing left uh, for uh, the mom and kids. Uh, and if she manages to get a job, uh, which is unlikely because women are excluded from so many jobs and professions, uh, she wouldn't own her earnings anyway, because well, under the law, married women don't 
own property or their own earnings. And those and are the more... things that are official patriarchy. Uh, and, Dr. Suk, uh, and... I'm, I'm afraid we're hitting a hard break right now. So I'm going to I'm going to have okay. to beg you because I didn't get to half my questions. If we can get you to come back with Corey for a part two, because this book is so important. There's so much I want to ask you about. Will you return, Dr. Suk? And can we do a part two of this? Sure, absolutely. Again, Julie Suk is the author. The new book is After Misogyny, How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About It. We have to book more time next time because we barely scratch the surface. Please come back. Corey, thank you so much. I'm sorry it was so brief. We'll be right back in just a moment. This is Progress. So our next guest was telling me I have to go back on TV and I guess he has an impact on me because tomorrow night you can see me on both News Nation and on MSNBC. And I'll be on them while I'm here because I can defy time and space. Dr. Jason Nichols is an award-winning full-time senior lecturer in the African-American Studies Department at the University of Maryland College Park. You may have read his stuff or seen him in The Guardian, Al Jazeera, Fox News, NBC, The Hill. He's all over Al Jazeera, English, Newsmax, MSNBC, and Fox. He also hosts the Working Class Elites podcast, where he discusses politics, current events, race, class, and gender with experts from all walks of life. People of Earth, welcome the smartest guy in the room, Dr. Jason Nichols. Hello, sir. Oh, thank you. You're too kind. And listen, this is, this is the highlight of my week, so I, I love this conversation. Well, I don't believe that for a second. It's only up from here. Um, you know, I, I have to begin by talking about something that we, we didn't discuss on the show yet because I just couldn't bring myself to play the audio. But as some of you have heard, an Oklahoma sheriff and several top officials were somehow recorded talking about how things were done back in the good old days. And anytime you hear a white man with a certain accent talking about the way shit used to get done, you know something bad's going to happen. Uh, and, and I mean, the tape, and again, I won't play it, but it's these good old boys in a police house with a woman present talking about beating and killing and burying local journalists and black people and complaining they could no longer hang black people with a damned rope. Even the governor was calling for a resignation. Jason, what can we say? I mean, I, I guess it's that sort of thing where we're all shocked, but we're not surprised. Exactly. That's that's a perfect way of stating it. We're shocked, but not surprised. Um, you know, that law enforcement around the country, and of course, this is Oklahoma, but could have been in many different different places, that sometimes they, they talk about people this way, and particularly the lives that they don't value. This is what yeah. we've been saying for the longest time, is that oftentimes black lives are not valued the same way. Um, it's interesting also to me that uh, Governor Stitt is coming out forcefully and saying these people should resign, they should resign. But we know when Republicans want people out, they play hardball, but apparently, he doesn't really play hardball because look at what Ron DeSantis, when he doesn't like a district attorney, he gets him out. He finds a way to You're get right. him out. When, you know, the Georgia legislature, they don't like Fonnie Willis. They're trying to find ways to get her out. You That's know, right. they're not waiting for her to resign. They're not saying, Fonnie Willis, you should resign. They're finding ways to get her out. That's right. Um, you know, same thing in, in many other places. So he must not really be that offended by this because he's just saying, well, 
if you have any conscience left, please resign. You know, but, but that's but not again, how you know what that's about. You know what that's about. It's a Republican governor of Oklahoma. That's not a profile in courage. He knows how bad it is, but he's not right. man enough to fire him himself because he needs the racist vote to keep his job. So he'll do the noble thing and call on him to voluntarily resign. And you're exactly right, Jason, because when these racist thugs don't resign how dirty do you think the governor's going to get his hands the fact is there's going to be a sizable amount of people in oklahoma who don't want this man to resign because hey he talks about the good old days exactly no it's it's exactly that i think that these uh people uh including some of the you know the the woman who was present i mean she didn't make any effort to stop any of that conversation she was very much oh, an yeah. active participant in very that conversation so. and you know a lot of times we we seem to make it seem like you know it, it's all white men and white women just are like casual bystanders or even you know somehow offended and on the side of of the people mm-hmm. uh who are being talked about. And that's not always the case. And it often isn't the case. Um, this is, you know, the a type of situation that I think happens more often uh, than, you know, we have audio for. And oh, yeah. we, saw, we saw what happened in LA with that city council people. And they mm-hmm. weren't even, you know, they weren't even white. <laughs> you know, they were, They were all Latinos. And, right. you know, they were saying the same things, not only about black people, but other Latinos, because remember, she talked about people from Oaxaca, Mexico, and said they're short and dark. That's right. That's right. Um, but you know what? Can, can I just say the hero here is the publisher of the Gazette newspaper, Bruce Willingham, because yeah. he thought that the the sheriff's office was illegally doing county business after a public meeting ended. So he left a voice activated recorder in the McCurtain County officials meeting. And so when he left his little recorder, he had just started recording automatically. And what he uncovered, of course, was cops speaking fondly of murdering black people and back when they could do it. And this is already having incredible repercussions because already now there's an Oklahoma woman and she's she's white, but she's suing the sheriff's office, who the guy who made these comments, one year after her husband died from excessive force while in custody of those sheriff's deputies. So really, this governor might be out of options soon and might have to fire this guy before he bankrupts the entire precinct. Well, you know, honestly, when it comes to law enforcement, they don't really think about bankrupting them because what is it? Chicago, I think, pays like $150 million a year in, yeah. in excessive force. Uh, and, you know, no one bats a lash. They'll complain about teachers getting paid more. They'll complain about a whole lot of things. They'll say, oh, don't defund the police. But the police, with the way that they're policing, and I don't want to sound like I'm anti-cop because I'm not. Um, You're not. You know, I, I'm totally not. I, I believe, you know, Everybody hates cops until they need one. Everybody hates lawyers until they need one. You know what I mean? Like, so I'm not, you know, I'm not anti-police, but it seems like these people and, and Republicans are pro-police until they're not. You know what I mean? Exactly. By the way, they, yeah. they hey, let's police. defund the FBI. Let's defund the, I mean, right. let's beat the crap out of cops on the steps of the Capitol. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, so, the, you know, they're always like, oh, they want to, the left wants to defund the police and then they talk about defunding the police and they defend police 
who through bad policing end up costing the city hundreds of millions of dollars uh, that they could go into many different places, schools, social Mm -hmm. programs, all the mental health care that they talk about that they want. That could come from some of those tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars that go into Chicago, uh, you know, excessive force uh, settlements. And the same thing in other parts of the country, whether it's Minneapolis or Baltimore or all over the country where you have these kinds of settlements. And when people start to suggest, hey, maybe a good way to get police to behave is to start taking it out of their uh, pensions. Everyone says you hate cops. And it's like, that's not the case. But can I tell you what's totally outrageous about this? Uh, the the Gazette News publisher who left the voice activated recorder in the in the meeting room, he he said that he had been told by his attorneys he was doing nothing illegal. Um, the sheriff, Sheriff Kevin Clardy, he's come out at not resigning, but after discussing killing and burying newspaper reporters after having the district two county commissioner in the room with him who who lamented being a, uh, that he couldn't hang black men anymore and said they got more rights than we got <laughs> the sheriff has come out and said that the real problem here is the journalist who illegally recorded their conversation he says the recordings are illegal and the sheriff the racist murderous sheriff says felony charges will be filed on the journalist who made the recording and jason I think it's great that he's doing it because if he just resigned, this story would go away tomorrow. But because he's not, because he's going to actually try to fight back and say, well, hey, the, re- the problem is the recording, not me talking about racism and murder on it. Um, it's going to make this story so much bigger. It's going to carry the story on. It is going to make so many people who hadn't heard that audio now hear that audio. And this idiot, because he, ha- there's yeah. no way he's not a complete twit, has just made his life a lot worse by trying to put the journalist who recorded his murderous thoughts on trial. You know, I was just uh, on Roland Martin's show. Um, mm. yeah, it's like a daily digital show. And I was yeah. on that. And... Uh, one of the things, one of the people that that was interviewed when I was on there was uh, the mayor of the town, um, who is black, by the way. Oh my! The town, I believe, is like forty eight percent black. Like it's, and and that's your sheriff. And yeah. you know, we had a similar situation actually in uh, <sighs> in my county, where our sheriff for a long time, it wasn't until it finally came out. Uh, I think someone made a recording uh, where he was using the N word and and you know all these kinds of things that we expect from racist sheriffs. You know these kind of like you know want to be bull Connors. You know and and like this was like in the you know 2010s. Um, yeah. Finally, we got rid of that guy. But for the longest time, and I live in one of the most diverse counties you know, in the state and probably on the whole East Coast and maybe in the country. And Mm -hmm. yet our sheriff was sitting there calling people N-words, harassing people that worked in the sheriff's office, doing all of that. And and we're going to blame. They go and say, oh, but the recording was illegal. (laughs) It's like what you're doing should be illegal, you know, And, and you can't tell me someone who harbors those feelings treats everyone the same when they walk out on the street exactly exactly i mean this is my whole thing if you know if 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 some cop has a facebook account 
and in his private Facebook account on his off hours, he belongs to white supremacist groups. That guy can't be a cop anymore. It's really simple. And Joe Biden, in his in his 2020 convention acceptance speech, said the most shocking line of it was, we're going to root out white supremacy in our police precincts. And I was like, well, that no way are you going to do that. How could you ever do that? Yeah. So it's a bit gratifying to see that when they rooted out themselves, I completely endorse this. And I think that every one of these guys has to be smoked out and exposed and ridiculed because we cannot trust these people to protect and serve all citizens with equal vigilance when we know for a fact they hate the ones that don't look like them. Yeah. And I'll tell you this. They got in, in that case in L.A. that we you know, that I just referenced with yeah. Nuri Martinez and, and a couple other people, um, elected officials and, and uh, one um, who I think is a union leader, which is also really troubling that you lead a union and, yeah. and you would say that. But at any rate, uh, those people who made those racist comments, they were at least one of them was made to step down, you know? Yeah. Now, if as happy as I was about that, if we're going to make the Mexican American lady step down, but this guy, this white dude in Oklahoma gets to stay there, you know what I mean? Well, I mean, but that's it, right? Like we made Al Franken step down, but Donald Trump got to stay there. It's 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 always right. a, a case of uh, uneven justice in this country. And no one's talking about this E. Jean Carroll case, by the way. But Well, they haven't yet, but they will. Uh, Trump is probably, we just heard today, probably not going to attend. Um, e. Jean, I've known, I've known E. Jean Carroll for 20 years. She's been on this show before. Uh, what do you think about this case? I actually kind of feel like with Donald Trump, it's not going to be one big thing. It might have to be a thousand little things. It might have to be E. Jean Carroll and Fonnie Willis and and summer zervos and jack smith uh it, it just might take a village <laughs> to, yeah. to build a lot of a lot of different cases i mean here's the thing with Eugene carroll first of all i thought that they were you know the media was far too quick to dismiss her because of I what agree. she said and i defended her publicly um what she said in the interview with a anderson cooper where she yeah. said uh, I think she said something like, I think a lot of people think rape is sexy. Yeah. And people were like, she's a crazy person. And it's like, you and I, we grew up on, you know, Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah. And, you know, where all these kinds of date rape and things were normalized. And guess what? They were a joke. Like, everybody 16 laughed. Candles. 16, 16 Candles. 16 Candles ends with Anthony Michael Hall raping a girl who's passed out. <laughs> and it's meant yeah. to be the climax of the movie. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, Revenge of the Nerds, he goes in and pretends to be another guy and starts, you know, sleeping yep. with this with this young girl. Yep. And number one, all this teenage sex is kind of uncomfortable now. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, this is really weird. But, you know, these are the things that we either make comedy, guys running in and doing panty raids and stealing girls' underwear. Like, we oh. thought... At the time, like it's revolting now, <laughs> but but at the time, so the fact that E. Jean Carroll would say that we think rape is okay as a society, that's not crazy. That's not crazy at all, you know, because of where our society is. And now we have improved a lot of things, I think, yes. with exposing rape culture. But there are people out there who say rape culture is a myth. There's all types of people on the right who say that. 
you know? So, I mean, the fact that she is, that she said that should not have led to her dismissal by the corporate media, either the, even the so-called left-wing anti-Trump corporate media just dismissed her. But one of the things that we know about her case, and I think strengthens it, is the fact that she told people at the time. Yes. It wasn't that she held it, you know, inside her like many rape victims do, by the way. That's right. That's right. You know, and can you imagine? And I, I, you know, I'll be honest. I think there are other people who have been president that you could say this about. You know, no doubt. Yeah. Democrats, Democrats who've been president, you could say this about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But and, and the thing is. Donald, can you imagine being violated in that way and then watching that person become president of the United States? It's bad enough to see his name on buildings. You're driving through. You're trying to, like, get your life back together after being assaulted. Not saying that he did it. You know, I don't know. We don't know. But he should have his day in court, <laughs> you right. know, which, which not he will. he did it. He's just on tape not bragging saying. about sexual assault. That's all. They're not saying he did it. He just brags <laughs> that he does it. That's that. That's yeah. that's all I'm saying. But, uh, speaking speaking of of legal cases, can I can I ask you your thoughts on um, the trial of the year that ended moments before it started? The Fox settlement with Dominion this week. <laughs> it seems like you know everyone I talk to is either way too angry or way too happy. I keep saying the same yeah. thing. This is just the first. This is just the beginning. But I mean, what were your thoughts on what we saw this yeah. week? I mean, um, I was I was a little shocked. I thought Fox was going to try and fight it, but I don't think that they wanted. I mean, a lot of the skeletons were already out there, but I think yeah. Rupert Murdoch was tired. You know, he tried. Yeah. They tried everything. Um, and Fox News, number one, this is not going to people who are like, this is going to bankrupt Fox News. It's not Fox News makes a, what makes one point two billion dollars of profit. Exactly. Of revenue every single year. Yeah. So this is, you know, three quarters of their profit. Um, but they still got four hundred million dollars. Like it's just a bad year, basically. Yeah. And, and you know, <laughs> but they're, they're going to be okay. I mean, they they had four point one billion dollars on hand lying around at the end of uh, last year. So yeah, it, it's it's not going to hurt them at all financially, but. It hurts. I mean, you know this yeah. hurts Rupert Murdoch. They fired Dan Bongino today. I, I, I have a hard time believing firing Captain Stop the Steal is not related to the settlement this week. Yeah, and, and I'm sure, you know, Dan Bongino came out and said that it was they couldn't come to terms on this contract. Of course. He probably wanted a whole lot more money, and they were like, we don't have that much money. <laughs> like, we're just paying somebody. Like, just imagine... You know, if you have four thousand dollars in the bank and someone tells you, hey, pay, pay eight, you know, pay eight hundred bucks. You'd like. Right. That hurts. You know what I mean? It's not going to break you. You're going to eat. But that still hurts. You still felt that eight hundred dollars all at once. Um, So I think you're you're seeing them probably they're probably going to tighten their belts, you know, a little bit. I mean, I don't think so. I mean, they fired Lou Dobbs. Like they'll 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 cut someone loose if they can afford to cut them loose. You know what I mean? They had so many people on the air who lied about COVID, so they fired Diamond and Silk for lying about COVID. They had so many people on the air who lied about Donald Trump's election, 
So they fired Dan Bongino for lying about Donald Trump's election. I mean, well, I'm sure the reason Dan Bongino gave isn't the truth because Dan Bongino said it. <laughs> so yeah. I don't think it was, they <laughs> yeah. couldn't because they can't they canceled his online show as well. They canceled both of his shows today. Yeah. I don't think it's just because of a contractual dispute. Yeah. So the the rumor is that they're going to get rid of Bartiromo and um, Janine Piero, is that her name? Really? Yeah, Janine. I, I, I know them both. I, I used to work with Maria and I've been on Judge Janine's horrible show. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't really get the appeal of, of Piero, so that doesn't oh, shock Oh, really, me. Jason? You don't get the appeal of Judge Janine? You, a, 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 a black man who's a college professor, doesn't enjoy the drunken <laughs> rantings of Janine Piero? I'm shocked. <laughs> I mean, yeah. She's completely crazy. She's completely crazy, but she's everybody's drunk racist aunt. And that's why she has a gig on Fox on Saturday night. It's the closest the audience has to going out and doing something. It's kind of weird, though, to me that Maria Bartiromo, I don't think is crazy. I think she just plays one on TV. Like, well, she I, I think she's I, she didn't used to be. I mean, I worked with her at CNBC. Lou Dobbs wasn't either, though. No, Lou Dobbs was totally sane. I knew him years <laughs> ago back when he left and worked at CNN and then did space.com. Like there it just seems to be either either uh, a, a byproduct of age or a byproduct of privilege, because at some mm -hmm. point, you know, Donald Trump's true ethnic group is celebrity. And I think at some point, you know, there's a reason why Ellen hangs out with George W. Bush watching a game, even though George W. Bush tried to stop her from being able to marry. Celebrity is its own ethnicity. And so I think that Maria Bartiromo, at a certain point, stopped being a journalist and started being a rich, famous person. And in that sense, Donald Trump's her team captain. And I think it's also like there is something to be said about, you know, in the middle of the night after you do a show, you get a text from the president of the United States. Right. Yeah. It's like, seductive. Yeah. I think that's like I can I can text the president and he'll text me back or I'll call the president. He wants to talk to me. You know, th those are things that I think are, are seductive for a lot of people. When you look at when Trump went into the White House, those were not even B teamers. Those were like, <laughs> like no. the bottom of went the barrel. Yeah. Omarosa. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. You know, it, like it was literally the, the the apprentice, but he was, you know, as his bass got louder and louder, the more mainstream people started to embrace him and they realized he wasn't going anywhere. They realized that his bass was uh, was demanding it. And that's what Fox fell into. It was like, yeah, you know, and, yeah. and they're trying to get away from it and they're still struggling to get away from it because DeSantis is isn't the guy. And they're, you know, they're not going to be able yeah. to get away from Trump. They're going to have to be pro-Trump again. It's so true. I mean, the Republican establishment, and I, I did a taping with Dan Abrams for News Nation earlier tonight, and we were talking about this. The GOP establishment hates Trump. Can't stand the man. He's an embarrassment to them. He's cost them money. He's cost them votes. He's raising all these funds, but they're just going to his pack, and it's not helping down-ballot races at all. He's not supporting the party financially. They hate Mitch McConnell, the Senate. They hate him, but they need that base. They're all about that base. They love that audience. And so DeSantis now is sort of the the stand-in for the establishment. And he's going to try to, you know, beat Donald Trump up at his own game, just like Chris Christie, Marco Rubio, and Ted Cruz did such a bang-up job of doing six years ago. Um, right. meanwhile, Joe, like yeah, but meanwhile, Joe Biden announces that he's going to announce next week that he's running. Uh, and he's beginning to get some Democratic opposition as well in the form of... Um, 
someone I've known for a long time, a friend of this show, Robert Kennedy Jr. I'm yeah. dying to know your thoughts on on both Biden and Robert Kennedy making up what the Democratic field looks like so far. So I think Robert F. Kennedy is an interesting character. I think he's somebody who I, I really believe in his sincerity. I think he's Me sincere in, in what he's Thinks and I've admired doing. him. I've admired him in many ways over the years. And he's a fascinating guy and a very magnetic yeah. and compelling and deeply intelligent guy. Yes. Yeah. And and I, you know, you have to respect his environmental activism. You know, I, I did an interview the other day and people were asking me, you know, is he, you know, is it all about the Kennedy name? And I'm like, no, he's he's got accomplishments on his own. Um, he's he's mm. done a lot as an environmental lawyer and, and you know, the the activism that he did and, and his father, of course, in his announcement speech, he kept talking about his father's civil rights legacy. That's um, right. Now, let me be clear, though, as a student of history, I think he over romanticized his father's civil rights record, because mm. let's remember his father mm. was the one who uh authorized all those wiretaps on dr That's king right. so all yeah. of a sudden he's making it seem like my father was arm in arm with dr king and it's like your father tapped his phone <laughs> like, by, by, by the end he was by the end he was as attorney by the general, end he was. Sir, yes. i mean we always have to say robert kennedy jr to me represents a, a a really incredible case of a politician who evolved dramatically in public and became much more progressive after he was already famous true no that that is true when he was attorney general, though, it's important to remember he was like, he heard yeah. King was a communist. That That's was the right. whole thing. King That's was a right. communist. And he started, He, you know, it wasn't Jagger Hoover that did it on his own. People got to remember there was somebody mm -hmm. ahead of him, which was the attorney general at the time, which was That's Robert right. F. Kennedy. And we also have to remember that John F. Kennedy could have done a lot of that legislation that, uh, that LBJ did, but he Absolutely. didn't because he wanted to stay away from the issue because he thought he would lose Southern white votes. He realized that he was a Massachusetts liberal with a thick, you know, Boston accent. And he was like, eh, I don't want to get into that. So let's not over romanticize. I'm not saying that I'm, they- I'm with you all the way, with you all the way on this. Yeah. But, but I'm, I'm curious, why, why do you think Robert Kennedy, who's never really been all that interested in running for office before, is now running for the first time uh, for president and seemingly with the blessings of General Michael Flynn and Steve, Steve Bannon. Bannon. You saw yeah. those photos making the rounds this week. The whole thing stinks like Chris Christie's hamper. I'm sorry. Yeah. Tucker, Tucker Carlson. I just watched yeah. the Tucker Carlson interview. Um, I think he, he is one of those guys who talks about these kind of populist economic things without actually really leaning in on what he would do. That's the difference between him and Bernie Sanders. You're right. Bernie Sanders is pretty clear about what he would do in order to close some of these disparities and gaps. You You're know, right. that's why I supported Bernie Sanders. I'd support him again. <laughs> you know, if yeah. Bernie ran against incumbent Biden, and I think Biden's been a good president, to be mm -hmm. honest with you, but I would I would vote for Bernie again. First yeah. of all, seeing the people that are supporting RFK is is a red flag for me. That's that's troubling. You mean um, the Tulsi Gabbard wing of the Democratic Party? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that he's, um, you know, that's a little bit troubling. I see the people, you know, I, I uh, am doing some moonlighting on the Hill, uh, the Hill TV. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll be on there tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and their audience is all about RFK. And I'm like, what? I don't know, about? man. You know, What's that about? Since yeah, like, but again, Republicans, not saying that RFK is a Republican, because like I said, I believe in his he's sincerity. Not, he's not. Yeah, he's not. Yeah. Um, but but there's a certain kind of person on the left who is very happy to burn it all down. I have people in my life and I love and artists and, and journalists and, and who who are uh, who, who have become so left that they have greater contempt for moderate Democrats than they do for actual fascists. And we've Absolutely. seen it happen. And, and oh, by, the way, by the way, <laughs> and then Susan Sarandon gets to go off and go to Milan because uh, Donald Trump's presidency is not going to hurt her one bit. But we've seen this happen before that, that, you know, I mean, think about all the guys in three states whose purity tests were way too strong to ever vote for Hillary Clinton. And they didn't have uteruses. And now Roe v. Wade is gone. I mean, that that kind of leftism is really destructive when it's not just about you don't like compromise. No one does. But when you're willing to let fascists win because you want to believe that you're so pure. And you don't recognize in the case of RFK, you don't recognize that the fascists are supporting you for a reason. They want Mm -hmm. to cause they want Biden to run in a tough primary, you know, not have the easy road of an incumbent. Yeah. And, you know, RFK, he has an, he has the name recognition like no other politician in America. He's Robert F. Kennedy, you yeah. know, um, and him saying I'm a Kennedy Democrat. And I I would honestly be more interested in him if he were running as a third party candidate, because I, so I think he I. actually fits pretty well there. But yeah. here it just seems like he's not going to win the nomination. So it's almost like he's trying to stir it up and he's getting the back to be a spoiler. Who's funding it? Who's talked him into it? And, you know, he's going to be the pro science guy who's anti-vaccine. It just something doesn't add up here. And 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 I like him. He's done the show. I've met him many times. But yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I think like the thing is, if you want to talk about vaccine mandates, that's a discussion to have. You know what I mean? If you were uh, opposed to the lockdowns, in retrospect, that's a discussion we can have. I can I can understand how, you know, I'll have a counterpoint, but you know, I, I understand where people might be attracted to that. Yeah. But when you're against vaccines in writ large and you're talking about vaccines like polio vaccines, like yeah. that have saved millions upon millions of lives, that's a bridge too far. And I think it's going to be a bridge too far for most Americans. Oh, yeah. I think he's going to get support and all of the support that he's getting is not from Democratic voters. So he That's may it. do well in some, some open primary states, but and he's starting out in New Hampshire, which is a smart move. It's a very white state. Yeah. It's a New England state. So they yeah. still remember the Kennedys fondly. The Kennedy name still means something. But it's also important to remember that Kathleen Kennedy Townsend is not supporting him. His cousin. That's right. You're not going to see a lot brother. of Kennedys on the stump with him. You're exactly right. Yeah. Dr. Nichols, we're, we're all out of time. What's the best way for our audience to follow you and keep up with all your work, sir? Well, first of all, you can certainly listen to my podcast, The Working Class Elites. Uh, please come and listen to that. Uh, we're going to be breaking down a, a bunch of different topics. Um, and hopefully we'll be blessed with John Fugelsang's uh, wisdom. You book me, I will come. <laughs> uh, awesome. I'm glad to yeah. hear that. Um, Thank you, Jason. Also, you can you can hear me. Uh, you can come to my social media uh, at Dr. Jason Nichols. 
and you know jason nichols phd on facebook and lastly you can hear me on tell me everything or listen to me on the hill tomorrow i'd love to thank you jason thank you so much have a great weekend sir you too peace